breaking earnings. Apple reports after the bell. Will the tech giant meet or beat expectations? Key numbers, shareholder reaction, instant analysis. John Fort, Morgan Brennan, closing bell overtime for Eastern CNBC. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, thoughtful market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. And I'm your host, Bob Pisani, so let's get right to it. Today on the show, we catch up with three of the most innovative ETF fund managers out there, and we dive into disruptive technology plays and what's winning right now. Here's my conversation with Jay Jacobs, head of research and strategy at Global X ETFs, Kathy Wood, founder and CEO of ARK Investment, and Noah Hammond, CEO of Advisor Shares. Kathy, let me start with you. Uh, you run a family of ETFs that's really focused on technological, uh, medical innovation out there. Uh, the markets are moving today uh, partly on some hopes for a vaccine breakthrough and some promising news from Moderna. Uh, overall, you run the ARK Genomic Revolution ETF. That's A-R-K-J. That's at a new high today. It targets companies uh, involved in the ge genomics industry. Uh, I wonder if you could chat about that for a minute. Over and over again, and we have talked many times, you and I, uh, we see tech in any form, whether it is uh, medical, whether it's industrial, whether it's banking, whatever. <laughs> tech is transforming industries, and we're seeing that uh, certainly uh, today again in the news. Kathy? Yes, uh, I think with the new technologies, the combination and convergence of DNA sequencing, artificial intelligence, and CRISPR gene editing, uh, we are going to we're on the threshold of curing diseases. Uh, first human trials for uh, gene editing started last year. I think we're going to get a lot of good news this year. And as far as the vaccines, we have um, we don't own Moderna. We own a company called Arcturus, and it's shot up to uh, the number one position in uh, ARKG uh, because it, too, has a, an mRNA uh, vaccine, just like Moderna. Um, uh, we think both companies are in a fine position. Arcturus has a, a different delivery system that we think might be more effective, but there is so much room uh, out there for these vaccines that uh, we think a number of companies are going to find good success there. Kathy, I want to come back and talk more about your, your other funds out there. But Jay, let me uh, also chat with you for a moment here. You also have funds in, in your family that are involved in disruptive technology. Uh, you have a, a robot ETF. You've got a cloud computing ETF. The robot is B-O-T-Z, cloud computing, C-L-O-U. Tell us a little bit about them and how, uh, what kind of inflows or outflows are you seeing there? Is, is, is the interest still there, given um, how important disruptive technologies are, have been this year? Absolutely. You know, investors are recognizing that disruptive technology is not only not really harmed by what we're seeing during COVID-19, they're actually some of the biggest beneficiaries. You know, so if we look at the cloud computing ETF, CLOU, it's holding companies that are facilitating video conferencing. It's holding companies that are facilitating uh, governments communicating with their uh, local constituents about emergency response or companies communicating with their customers all through uh, software, through the Internet, um, through these different types of cloud infrastructure. And that is just how the world is working during this stay-at-home environment. So we're seeing a lot of interest in cloud and robotics right now, and cloud in particular Cloud ETFs have brought in over a billion dollars year to date, with most of that money coming in just in April. So investors certainly realize that cloud computing has become really the key to the economy right now. 
Yeah, and Kathy, you, you run the, the next generation internet, AR, I don't have it here, but ARKW, I think it is, which is pretty yes. much along the same themes. This is all, and what's interesting about what you're doing, Kathy, is it's very actively managed, and you make a very big point of the active management parts. So for something like next generation internet ETF, how, what goes into deciding what the weightings are? It's not an index. You're picking the stocks here. How do you determine what you like and don't like? Well, we have um, we have top-down modeling, bottom-up modeling, and then an overlay, a six-metric scoring system uh, that is very important to innovation, starting with a visionary management, moats or barriers to entry, uh, market uh, share leadership, uh, uh, execution, thesis risk and valuation. And, uh, and our, our stock positions line up pretty well with the, the, the composite of those scores. So generally, that's how we work it. Okay, so it's a focused methodology that you're using, right? Yes. You're not, it's not in a, an old, it's, it's a sort of a screen. I'm trying to, it's a scientific yeah. methodology you're using here. Well, yeah, uh, there's some art here as well. Uh, we we generally start a position in genomics. We'll start it at 50 basis points or in the other funds, 100. Uh, our highest positions, uh, we I can buy up to 10% uh, position in any one fund uh, but, and then let it run. We'll let it run to 12 or 13%, at which point we'll, we'll take profits. I think active in ETFs, uh, and active in any wrapper, frankly, uh, is very useful uh, for driving alpha. Alpha, in our case, relative to not managing actively. And I'll just give you a good case in point. Tesla, if you look at Tesla in the year 2018 uh, and take away the performance of the stock, it was a roller coaster generally throughout the year. And we were trading regularly around the volatility. If you just isolate the trading activity, our trading activity in Tesla, what you would have found is 175 basis points contribution to performance. And remember, 2018 was a down year. We had an up year. And I think uh, one of the important reasons is we we trade around the volatility. If uh, Tesla is going down because some hedge fund or uh, you know, negative analyst is saying something that seems really awful. Uh, we we have a pretty good handle for, given our research on that stuff, and we'll be buying into it unless it's a big surprise to us. And on the contrary, when we feel like uh, uh, analysts are hyperventilating uh, about a stock, and in, including Tesla, when when there were takeover rumors of it, helped by Elon Musk himself, we naturally just take profits because we know we're going to get another opportunity associated with controversy to buy the stock lower. Yeah, just one last point. We get a lot of questions about how can you be so positive on Tesla and be selling it. Well, I I, I sold it just in the way I described, but it never. Uh, lost the number one position in our funds. Uh, if we had not taken profits in its ride up from 178 to 900 or nearly a thousand, it would have been nearly 20, maybe over 20% of the fund. Uh, that would not be wise portfolio management. We like to yeah. uh, control our position sizes as I described. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there is also the art part, but there is a point where 
20% is certainly too much. Moderna is one of the, um, uh, I put up a, an ETF earlier today where Moderna is, is almost 13% of the holding in that, in that ETF. And that gets a little bit worrisome at some point. Uh, Noah, let me bring in you and uh, chat with you. Uh, besides sure. disruptive technology, I get a lot of interest in um, how to uh, hedge, uh, how to go long, long, short ETFs. You run some interesting ETFs that are along this line. Your uh, advisor shares Ranger Equity Bear ETF. The symbol is HDGE, hedge, get it? Right. <laughs> uh, you short U.S. listed companies believed to have low earnings quality out there. Uh, seems to have done very well, HDGE. Tell us about it and what, what's the idea behind this? Sure. So it's a short selling fund, as simple as that. So it's not geared. It's not the type that, you know, resets on a daily basis. It's your ability to invest in a typical short selling manager uh, with transparency, as you can see our short positions on the site. And so we've seen a lot of demand, not surprisingly, this year hedges up, you know, 10% as of last Friday. Uh, and as you noted, they've got a unique investment style where it's very fundamentally driven, uh, has a bit of a forensic accounting approach, um, but they are looking for, you know, opportunities to short um, where companies could struggle, you know, meeting their earnings estimates and earning guidance. So not saying they're bad companies, but just saying the companies might struggle hitting yeah. their numbers, and thus it becomes a good opportunity to profit from a short perspective. So what are you, give us your four or five biggest positions right now. How big are they in the fund, uh, and, and when do you rebalance the fund? So no set rebalancing time frame. That's probably the easiest question to, to answer. Uh, it's very much conviction-weighted, um, though they sit around plus or minus, you know, to a half percent to our top position, which is Credit Acceptance Course, uh, Corp, uh, ticker symbol CACC, and they're uh, an entity that primarily provides loans in the automotive space. That's a 3% weighting uh, in the short position for hedge right now. Um, but there's constant adjustments. In a short fund, you've got to constantly manage your exposure, especially especially on, on more volatile days, uh, to make sure that the assets in the fund are matching up with how much short exposure we have. We try to match it sort of dollar for dollar, but you're constantly making little mm. tweaks and adjustments right. there based on what the market does, but also based on flows in the fund. Right. So it's all about low earnings quality. This word is around a lot these days. Quality, you know, they want fortress balance sheet things, high quality. Right. What does low earnings quality mean, just generically? Because that's how this fund is described. Sure, absolutely. So you can think about maybe companies that have had increased earnings, but they've maybe achieved it through buybacks, right? So fewer outstanding shares, same level of earnings. It might look like it's increasing on a per share basis, and maybe those stocks have moved up in the market because of that. But when those types of things stop or they become more difficult to do, you know, that's a company you want to look at to try to find the right opportunity to short them. But some of it could just be very much fundamentally driven factors, right? Other holdings are things like Greenbrier companies, GBX or Hilton Grand, uh, HGV, where we've already seen some earnings weakness and know there should be more right. coming. So fundamentally driven, uh, as you described earlier, uh, uh, mostly probably more art maybe than science, but we are looking at the numbers to make those determinations. And you've got another one that's, I guess you would call it a momentum fund, really. Uh, this is the advisor shares Dorsey Wright short ETF, DWSH is the symbol yes. there. Um, you're shorting large cap companies that are exhibiting weak relative strength. So that's sort of a momentum play. That's not an earnings play. Am I right? 
Very much so, right. So very unemotional, very disciplined, very quantitative in nature, um, relative strength and momentum based. So yeah, instead of trying to be long the companies that are demonstrating the highest relative strength, we are shorting a basket, which, which again, no conviction when we rebalance, which you know we'll do not uh, consistently on a monthly basis, but as we start to turn over the portfolio, we, we'll reset back to an equal weight. Uh, so no conviction in any individual position, but yeah. yes, we will short those demonstrating the, the greatest relative weakness. And so not surprising, you're seeing things like um, energy space, Marathon Oil nice. is, is the top short in that, or Diamondback yeah. Energy as well. Yeah, but relative strength, I mean, usually RSI, relative strength indexes, usually they use like, these are short-term things, like two weeks or so. Is that, is that it is. What, what's the length so you'll of see time? The Right, you'll see the portfolio turnover, you know, probably quite a bit more in this portfolio, whereas in Hedge, you know, they're making that fundamental decision, um, you know, the challenges from a revenue perspective on that side can be persistent, but it's part of our approach to really diversify where you're getting your alpha exposure. You know, not saying that the yeah. fundamental approach is always going to work and not saying the technical approach is always going to work, though DWSH year-to-date is up 20%, so we've seen significant demand, not surprisingly, in that. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very different in how they approach it, but use combined in a portfolio, probably a, a smarter way to, to hedge some of your long positions. Good point. Um, I want to just uh, move on here uh, because there's been also interest, I get emails, <laughs> Uh, about uh, dividends. Uh, there's some very traditional investors out there. And, you know, a month ago, I was getting bombarded with uh, interest on dividend ETFs. Jay, um, you have SDIV, SDIV, that's the Global X Super Dividend Fund. Uh, this is an equal weighted index, 100 global securities with high yields. Tell us a little bit about that. One of the things I've noticed is it's really gotten clobbered. It's, it's probably down 50% in the last three months or so. What, what's behind that? Tell us a little bit about this fund. Well, in, investors have been looking for income for for the better part of a decade since the global financial crisis when interest rates really started to stay low in the U.S. and around the world. So looking at dividend strategies has been key to investors' strategies uh, going forward to achieve you know any sort of income in their portfolio. The challenge recently is um, during the COVID-19 crisis, you've seen really disparity between the performance of tech names, which you know has contributed to some of the great performance in disruptive technology funds, and more small-cap value names, which tend to share a lot of characteristics with high dividend strategies. So these small-cap value names have really struggled. They haven't uh, enjoyed the same recovery that we've seen over the last month. And in addition, there is concerns around the world that with some of these emergency loans from governments, that they're going to require many companies to stop paying their dividends, at least for the time being. So there's still a lot more that could be shaking out of this place over the next few months. But, uh, you know, we don't see that, uh, that, uh, that ability to get income changing anytime soon. We see, if anything, we have lower interest rates around the world now, especially for government bonds. I, I think a lot of investors are concerned that the market has already rallied. Where is there opportunity left? This is one of the areas where there's certainly more opportunity for a recovery in asset values because it has not participated in the rally that we've seen in tech days. Yeah. So it's the fact that it's large, a lot of it's small cap, and the fact that there's concerns about dividend cuts, why it's 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 been down so much. Is that accurate? Exactly. It's it's in kind of the uh, a, a more risky segment of the market because of that small cap value okay. and, uh, and and dividend uh, uh, challenges right now. Okay, Kathy, I just want to come back to you because it's always fun talking about disruptive industries. In addition to your uh, all your innovation fund, the ARKK, which is your main one. 
Uh, you also run the ARK Industrial Innovation ETF, ARKQ is the symbol there. Uh, this obviously invests in companies that are being disruptive in the, in the tech area, but it has the word industrial in it. And sometimes yeah. people don't understand industrial and technology in the same sentence. And I keep explaining that essentially technology is an overlay across all industries. Can you explain this fund a little bit? What, what is it about industrial innovation that you're looking at here? And what, what's the leaders in this? What do you own in this fund? Sure. Uh, thank you for asking, Bob. Uh, we have actually renamed that fund uh, for exactly the reason you're saying. It was a uh, for many people, that was an oxymoron, industrial innovation, which it is not. Technology is moving into the industrial sector in a, in a very profound way. Um, and uh, so we have renamed it uh, Autonomous Technology and Robotics, just to get a sense. And you can, so uh, autonomous vehicles, Tesla's the, Tesla really is in the pole position. So that's our largest uh, position there. Uh, robotics generally, actually autonomous vehicles are robots, but in terms of robotics uh, in, in the way you and I have understood uh, that category historically, Teradyne is uh, our number one pick. Uh, and most people don't know Teradyne as having anything to do with robotics, but they bought a company called Universal Robots from, uh, it was a Danish company. and. Uh, that has, uh, it's, it's a small part of their revenue base right now, but uh, costs of industrial robots are dropping, especially collaborative robots or cobots to such a level. We think that costs, uh, the cost of one of these robots within a few years will be ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000. And so very price competitive for menial jobs uh, where there's probably a shortage of labor. Let's hope there is a shortage of labor in the next couple of years uh, as this economy rebounds. 3D printing is a big part of that fund. So you'll have Stratasys in there. Uh, Proto Labs, which is a quick turn manufacturing company, which also is in the 3D printing space, as well as Materialize, which is software in the 3D printing yeah. space. 3D printing has been held back by autos in particular and now aerospace, uh, but we think crisis creates opportunity and that, uh, uh, that it yeah. is going to accelerate the demand for 3D printing. Where are we on 3D printing? Because uh, 10 years ago, it was such a huge thing. I did so many stories mm -hmm. on it and we had a major problem 10 years ago. There was nothing to invest in. You know, you mentioned about Teradyne and the robotics firm small part of their revenues, there was almost no pure play. Well, there were Stratasys, but there weren't many back then. And yet the, the news on it has kind of died down. I, I have friends that are in the, um, in the old car business. They like buying muscle cars from the 60s and the 70s. Uh -huh. And apparently it's a revolution. You can now buy 1969 Camaro parts that are essentially made in, in uh, 3D printed. Uh, you can buy carburetors or things like that. This is what I am told. And so it's transformed that business uh, it seemed, but how is it changing I industry? Is it really going to break through now? Yes, it, it is. And uh, uh, you ask where it is. It's in the valley of despair. Many stocks are down 80 to 90% from their highs because their focus was on the consumer space and not on the industrial space. Aerospace, if it, aerospace companies like Boeing and Airbus, their gross margins are in the 15 to 20% range. 3D printing, now that the FAA is approving it, 
3D printing can cut those costs by up to 90%, as well as lower the weight and form factors of, of the various parts in engines and shrink the number of parts. So uh, aerospace, we think uh, given the turmoil and, and trouble it's in right now, it is going to seek out even uh, more aggressively some of these yeah. new technologies that are going to help it get back yeah. to profitability. And, and, and is this feasible now? I mean, I know, like I said before, my friends are telling me like old cars, you can get 3D manufactured auto parts, uh, mm -hmm. but that's a big thing, big difference between that and a jet engine manufactured in 3D. Is, is this a feasible technology? Is it being used now? Oh, for definitely. Like it is absolutely feasible. There was a showstopper there for a while. The FAA was very concerned and needed to scrutinize every part, every material. Uh, but now it is seeing... Uh, you know, proof of concept and has become uh, much more accepting of uh, 3D printing. It sees the stress that uh, aerospace companies are under. And so uh, I think we're going to see a lot more approvals uh, of different materials and a lot more companies uh, starting to service the aerospace world. The other area that 3D printing has changed completely is uh, in the medical space, hearing aids. I think 95% of all hearing aids in the world are 3D printed. Uh, well, there are many medical applications. Oh yes, many medical applications. You know, ultimately hips and knees, and you know that are going to submit to 3D printing uh, because 3D printing allows for such incredible customization. So it's perfectly perfect for the high value uh, medical space for aerospace and autos. And you know, autos and aerospace in real trouble. They are going to be turning to new technologies that are going to help them lower their costs, uh, lower the fuel consumption in terms of weight, and ultimately create different form factors. When we go autonomous, uh, we're going to see that some of us uh, might want to take an autonomous vehicle from New York to Boston and be able to sleep in it, whereas others just want to get across town and it can be a very much smaller or across campus. It can be much smaller. So we think uh, that entire autos ultimately will be um, 3D printed. That's wonderful. Uh, we're out of time, but this has just been a fascinating mm -hmm. conversation with all three of you. Uh, I've never had all three of you on together, but you're three of the most innovative uh, ETF funds that are out there. Of course, uh, my thanks to Noah and to Jay and to Kathy for joining us. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis to help you better understand ETFs and put them in the context of today's markets. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be talking about how the ETF landscape has evolved over the past almost 30 years. Once again, I'll be joined by my producer, Kirsten Chang. Just a quick reminder that many of us are working from home and our audio may sound a little bit different. Bob, you've been a pioneer of the ETF industry since the very beginning. You were a Jack Bogle disciple, Bogle of course being the father of index investing, and you've witnessed the industry transform rapidly over its 27-year history. How has it evolved and, and maybe what surprised you the most about it? Well, this is a long question. I, I think what surprised me the most is how slow it's been to change. When I first met Bogle in the early mid-1990s, and he already, for 20 years, had been on to the fact that most active managers do not outperform their indexes. Now, Bogle was not against active management. He had some of the best in the business at Wellington there. But 
he saw very early on what people saw but couldn't act on. That is, they, they don't generally outperform. If you find good active managers, definitely keep them, but most don't. So he believed the average investor would be fine just trying to mimic the indexes. He was one of the first people to ever create the, the S&P 500, uh, a trust that actually created and mimicked the S&P 500. Um, and he was very skeptical about the value of having people on who suddenly were outperforming for a few years, like the Bill Millers of the world. Uh, he didn't deny they were good. He just said they were just really rare. So what the thing that happened with ETFs is the, the first real ETF, Spider S&P, the S&P 500 ETF started in 93. I started covering them in 99. Um, and frankly, they didn't really take off until the financial crisis. That, we're talking 2008. And the reason that happened is people finally woke up to the fact that they were spending an awful lot of money. I'm, I'm talking in some cases 2% uh, a year uh, for mutual funds that were actively managed that didn't outperform the S&P 500. And Bogle had a cheap S&P 500. So people, the literature started exploding on this. And people started noting it because the losses and the financial crisis. And that's when it started taking off. But even now, it's stunning how much money is locked up in mutual funds that charge 1%, 2%. I've seen 2.25% mutual funds that I don't understand why people don't pull the money out. I do understand why. It's called sticky money. People don't think about it. They throw it away. They forget about it. Um, they don't pay any attention to it. It's amazing. But I, I, I could tell you, we'll talk separately about why the ETF business is growing. But one thing is, uh, it's amazing how little attention a lot of people pay to their investments. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. Breaking earnings. Apple reports after the bell. Will the tech giant meet or beat expectations? Key numbers, shareholder reaction, instant analysis. John Fort, Morgan Brennan, closing bell overtime for Eastern CNBC.